The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome on to a special preview of Dunked On Prime. We're doing this all week before the season starts, catching you up on many of the season previews that we've done on Dunked On Prime. And the hope, of course, is that you will subscribe for the season. We are offering not the best deal ever because that was for founding members, but the second best deal ever for a one-year membership for Dunked On Prime total access. That includes access to our discords, our chats, the same cap sheets and free agent lists that Danny and I use, which are updated in real time during transaction periods and a bunch of other odds and ends as well. In addition to at least four and recently more subscription podcast episodes per week and the fifth dunked on episode commercial free as well so i encourage you to give it a shot this special deal is going to end when the season begins so check it out if you sign up for a year membership you can get 35 percent off the monthly price for dunked on prime total access enjoy the show all right we are getting into the swing of things this is 21 days before the regular season starts Uh, absolutely insane so we got a lot of season previews to get to, and one of our most acclaimed guests for this purpose is Jay Michael of the Indianapolis Star. How you doing, man? I'm good, though I'm not sure what acclaim means using this reference to me, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, everyone I, on Twitter, we get some of the nicest comments uh, when you come on. They always think it's a, a really good show, so that's... Uh, that that's what a claim means in oh, this okay. circumstance. So it's a yeah. good thing. I thought it was a bad word. Okay. Right. Yeah, and and you know my policy. I don't listen to Twitter except when it's positive. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, boy, tell you what, that doesn't happen often. Which <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, no, I I I have uh, found that Pacers Twitter can be a, a rather vindictive bunch on occasion, uh, but. There will be a a new coach this year to maybe change uh, our opinion uh, of some of these Pacers players. So maybe that's where we can start here is talking about Nate Bjorkren and why they decided to move on from Nate McMillan and what it is that Bjorkren is going to try to bring to this team. You know, I think the reason they moved on from McMillan is twofold. I think a lot of people focus on uh, his unimaginative offense and that is pretty basic. Which obviously is, was part of the equation, um, but you know I think the, what put it over the top um, that I don't think people fully understand is by the time the season ended and they were eliminated by the Heat in that sweep. Look, the Pacers knew they weren't going to win that series. Um, it was a lot. It was a tough series, even if you had a healthy Sabonis. Without yeah. Sabonis, they knew they weren't winning that series. Um, they got swept. They weren't competitive most of the time. They were I think the closest they ever got was nine points in a final score, which was obviously um, disconcerting for them. But there was a culture there that has gotten progressively worse. And, you know, being away, you know, when, when, when the hiatus hit because of COVID, 
you know, being away from the team for so long, even I didn't have a gauge of how progressively worse it had gotten since I had last seen everyone. And I think that's the part that uh, I didn't gauge as, as, as correctly as I probably could have maybe if I had been there in person. But um, I think his relationships with his players, um, that put it over the top and that they thought the, the I'll stop short of saying saying the locker room culture is toxic. That I've been I've covered teams that's had toxic toxic locker rooms. It's not it wasn't toxic there, <laughs> but it definitely did not help. And I think that's what kind of put it over the top. So I know when you know a coach goes into the final season of his contract and it's not the future isn't certain. It's always going to be speculated that he might not come back or that he's in trouble. And you know that narrative was out on McMillan earlier in the season. And everybody was penciling in Mike D'Antoni as his replacement. Something that I wasn't quite sure that that would, that it would be D'Antoni if it was anyone. But yeah, well, I didn't think they were gonna they were willing to pay D'Antoni's price. That seemed that seemed uh, that, that's why I, that never added up for me. That, that that was part of the reason. The other thing is though, when I was told that as this whole process went along, when that job in Philadelphia went away because Doc Rivers got it because he unexpectedly got fired from the Clippers or. Uh, that that cut away some of D'Antoni's leverage and his asking price. Um, uh, yeah. But um, at least that's what I was told at the time. Now, D'Antoni, and I kind of reported that, I didn't know who the finalist. I, I wasn't in this ship that this person was a leading candidate and that person was a leading candidate. Because quite frankly, when you go into a coaching search, there's more misdirection put out there by teams and those coaches' representatives than at any point in dealing with anything when it comes to the NBA. So yeah, I never, I'm, I'm not a fan of saying this guy's a leading candidate because I'm gonna be, you know, some of these some of these agents have like three coaches who are in the running. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so so yeah, I wasn't sure where it was headed, but I was told that Tony thought he had a good shot at the job as we got into the final couple weeks of that search. Um, did he actually have a good shot at the job? I mean, I think he would have been a good may, may have been ended up being a good fallback for him and some other things falling apart. But it made me think back to some things I was told, you know, probably back in January. I had certain people gush to me about how great and how wonderful the t- Toronto Raptors were and not only the way they played, but the way their coaches related to players. And that should have been the writing on the wall for me that the Pacers probably going to try to take one of Toronto's coach. And of course, that's <laughs> they, they ended up doing. Uh, the, but yeah, that was I, after they had the the Raptors had that crazy comeback against the Pacers, right? Yeah, that was that that was that game was nuts. Uh, and that, that game we can get into this detail later, but that game was typical. The Pacers lost about four or five games that way last year, uh, just completely crumbled down the stretch. So so McMillan was fired, and that change was made. You know, I know a lot of people want to focus on didn't get out of the first round again, but he also had an all-star player injured again. But it was more so, in my opinion, if if they lost that series, say in six games and got eliminated, and the locker room culture was 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 solid, I'm not so sure we're sitting here talking about Nate McMillan getting fired. But I reported at the time, um, you know, people have to remember this too. Um, you know, they, they fully guaranteed the final year of his deal, which had been non-guaranteed. And that yeah. was that was in July before the before we went back into the bubble. And so you have to ask yourself what changed between that point and now you fire him August 24th. So something happened there in between because you didn't have to give away that money. You essentially gave him money uh, that you didn't have yeah. to give him. And, you know, I had reported at the time that um, that Herb Simon 
after watching him uh, when they got eliminated, says, "We this is ridiculous. This has to stop the ownership group. Like, this is something, this has to change. And kind of force that through. Uh, but, you know, if all things, like I said, if they have been competitive and losing, uh, I'm not so sure that we're here talking about um, a new coach. I think maybe he gets another year to get it right. Yeah, and Pritchard, of course, had the previous relationship with McMillan. I would imagine he was a McMillan believer uh but if the owner was willing to eat the cost of that then uh it seemed to make sense and it was a very dispiriting loss to the heat not only in that they got swept and but again it just seemed like the style of play didn't work well in the playoffs that they just they didn't have anything to deal with that switching defense of miami now if you had seen miami get to the NBA finals in pretty dominating fashion after that maybe that loss looks a little bit better but nonetheless it looked like they just didn't really have a great plan offensively so uh what is Bjorkring gonna do now to change that what's like the party line on what it's gonna be like under him less isolation basketball um less um less isolate less of this um you know Pick and roll. Look, obviously, pick and roll is a part of every NBA offense, but that being option one all the time, um, rather than being sprinkled in in the middle of some other actions to catch a defense off balance, I think you can see the way they use it differently. But I think the spacing is going to be significantly different. Um, you know, Bjorkman has. You know, if you talk to every player who's sat down with Bjorkman, he wants more and more threes. They think they have too many good three point shooters to be the lowest attempting three point shooting team in the league. I agree. So, so, <laughs> so I mean, that's that's almost a no-brainer. Um, they want to get up more threes. Uh, you know, if Miles Turner stays around, he averaged four threes a game last year. Um, that's the strength of his game, not the post-up. Even though he really shot, he shot like 34.5% from three. Didn't have a great year shooting last year after previously being at right about 40%. So you're looking at, you know, guys like Turner getting up, in particular getting more attempts. Uh, and, and I think part, a lot of that with him, you know, my biggest criticism or, or about when I evaluated this team when I first started covering him a few years ago, um, one of the first things I noticed was where they set screens and their guards come off the screens, they're always taking 20-foot jump. Yeah. And if you just simply change where you set the screen, it just creates a different flow, a different offense. It creates so much better spacing. And, look, and even if you miss the shot, uh, you have more avenues to get the rebound, longer rebound. Like, you're in better position to do more things. And that's one thing I always just, you know, uh, I remember asking Darren Collison when he was still playing here. I says, why don't you guys set the screen up higher? Like, it's it almost seems so elementary. Just set the yeah. screen here instead of there. And um, and, and that, that's just something basic that, you know, you don't even have to be an NBA coach to uh, figure out that's, that's another way that they can obviously manufacture more three-point shots. Yeah, a few things that stuck out to me. You mentioned the three-pointers. Their overall offense uh, per cleaning the glass it was 17th in the NBA. They did have the sixth-ranked defense, although they had a lot of teams kind of right around them in that. And, you know, this wasn't a great team last year. Victor Oladipo was missing. Um, but the other thing that sticks out to me is the Pacers, I think they have, like, decent personnel to run a little bit, particularly if Oladipo is healthy or on that second unit with uh, TJ McConnell and Aaron Holiday, and yet they were 26th in the NBA. They had 82% of their offensive possessions in the half court, and you scroll up the table, and who was number one in that? 
the Toronto Raptors only 77.5% of their possessions in the half court. So I would imagine they're going to try and run a lot more. Toronto is a great running team, and I would imagine Bjorken is going to try to bring that to Indiana. Yeah, I mean, the big question is if you're going to do that, which it seems to be what they're going to do, can you do it by starting two bigs? Yeah. You know, that that's the that's the that's the big question. You know, when Sabon when Sabonis signed his extension to stay in Indiana, you know, he wanted to start and he became an all star as a starter. Um but uh obviously Miles Turner wants to start. Um I think mentally uh it's good for him to start. If he was going to a bench role, I wonder how that would you know, certain guys are okay with that and can handle that. I question, could Miles Turner handle that? Is it going to be a situation where Bjorkman's going to change up things? Like, hey, it may depend on the opponent that, you know, he may start two bigs. And other times he may not. And, uh, and I think maybe it's the latter that you're going to see some games pending matchups that he's going to mix up his lineups. He's not necessarily going to put out the same starting five every time. At least that's my hunch. You know, it seems like they, and that's actually something they did in Toronto as well. They were able to change that up a little more, particularly uh, when they first got Marcus Gasol, they would swap him and Ibaka at times as the starter in that season where they won the championship. Um, it seems like they tried to fix it so that Miles Turner wasn't on the team anymore, and which you know it makes sense. I mean, I think you do have to trade one of them. I, I've I'm much more of a Miles Turner believer apparently than the NBA because it seems like the Pacers couldn't straight up give him away in the Gordon Hayward attempted sign and trade. Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it, it was surprising. I actually thought the deal for 30 year old Hayward may or may not be able to be himself again, um, to get a guy with Turner. I mean, I guess it depends on what do you see Turner ceiling as I, I, you know, he's still a young guy. He's still got a lot of growth or he has some growth to do. The question is how much growth is left. Can you get, can in Brett, could Brad Stevens get him to be consistently a 40% three-point shooter? We know he's a good rim protector. He has other limitations in his game. Um, you know, he's not, you know, he, he's not Bam out of bio who's going to be handling the ball up top, you know, starting the offense, uh, crossover dribbling, beating uh, beating small guards off the bounce and getting to the rim when small guards switch on him. That's not Miles Turner's game. So he has his limitations in what he's able to do in that regard. But when you consider... I thought, you know, a 40%, 40-plus percent three-point shooter, uh, that would have been Doug McDermott. Uh, Turner, who's at least a serviceable big, who's on a pretty good contract. Um, and the Pacers also were willing to put in a first-round pick. Uh, not sure what all the protections would have been on it, if there were any protections at all, but I know they offered a first-round pick as well. I thought that was more than enough to get that job done. Um, yeah, that, that, I hadn't heard that they offered a first. That's, uh, I mean, maybe it was ridiculously protected or something. But that's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I probably would have done that if I were Boston. That, that, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's more than enough for Gore, for a thirty-year-old Gordon Hayward, who, um, you know, a four-year, who, who is going to be on the back end of that contract. I think Charlotte's going to have buyer's remorse because you're not. If they, if they have, they, they're going to want to change and move that roster. I understand them. And why they did it and when they did it, I get all of that. Um, but I think that might be a contract you eventually end up regretting. You know, like a lot of teams who give these mega contracts to players and a few years later they realize that they can't really change their roster because the contract's too big. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, look, I reported even before we went into the offseason that uh, Boston was a team whose interest in Turner ramped up. Um, last 
I think it was last trade deadline, not of this past year, but it was 2019. Uh, Turner was in a deal to New Orleans. David Griffin uh, really wanted him in a deal. It was a three-team deal. The Pacers actually pulled back on it. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers actually, since last year, before they got Andre Drummond, uh, were deep in the weeds into the Miles Turner, uh, bringing him as their big, uh, as well as the Charlotte Hornets put out feelers um, soon as this regular season ended this year about Miles Turner if he had interest in playing there. So I, I know what the narrative has been recently that Turner all of a sudden isn't desirable. Uh, his contract is too big, which is ridiculous. Uh, $18 million a yeah. year in this market is not too big of a contract. So I, I think you, know, you just got to kind of figure out the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think Boston definitely had interest in Turner in that package. They just thought the Pacers were as desperate as Charlotte to get Gordon Hayward. And it turned out that they were not. Because if the Pacers would have given up another starter, even if it were Oladipo, because we don't know what Oladipo is going to be in a deal like that, then that would have been foolish. There's no way that you could possibly do that deal if you're Indiana. And I think Indiana uh, made the right move by not sweetening that deal any further. I think they actually uh, were giving up probably they probably would have ended up giving up a little bit too much to make it happen but i thought they did everything possible to make within reason to make that deal happen and i think boston might look back on this as an opportunity missed quick break here to remind you that this is a free preview of dunked on prime and we are having a sale if you buy a yearly membership of dunked on prime total access you'll get access to our cap sheets our chats our free agent rankings, and of course, dunked on five days a week, ad-free, and that is at 35% off the monthly price for dunked on Prime Total Access. Or if you want, give it a shot just with a monthly membership as well and see what you've been missing. With dunked on Prime, we are better than ever. We can react instantly. We can do multiple episodes in a day if we want to because we're not beholden to advertisers any longer. And also, if financial circumstances are an issue for you, we have a special deal for those in financial difficulty. You can check out my pinned tweet at Nate Duncan NBA. Click on that letter for more details on that. Now back to this free preview of Dunked on Prime. So uh, that's all water under the bridge. Uh, at this point, Turner's value, it does seem like it really went down after last year for whatever reason. I didn't think he was quite as good defensively as he was two years right. ago, but uh, you know, I mean, when you get to the point where the Pelicans would rather trade a first round pick for Steven Adams and then basically give Steven Adams the exact contract that Miles Turner has mm -hmm. going forward, they obviously valued Steven Adams over Miles Turner. Um, I would imagine that the Pacers would have done the deal that uh, the Pelicans did uh, were offering for Steven Adams for Miles Turner if they had, the Pels had wanted him. It just seems that they didn't want him. Uh, I mean, like I said, the, the, the Pacers had a chance to make that deal with the Pelicans a year ago yeah. uh, and didn't. So, and, and you know, it's, uh, look, I think people who are who are smart basketball people, and I, here I'm thinking about, you know, scouts and talent evaluators and see these teams. Miles Turner didn't have a good season last year, but it was also the first time he had to play with Sabonis in the starting lineup. He was playing out of position half yeah. the time. And so some of those numbers and some of that efficiency and why he wasn't as good, he, he was completely out of sync at times, like completely. And I think when you evaluate him, you have to take that into consideration. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, he, he wasn't as good on either end of the floor this year as he was the previous year. But what I would say about what he did do, what he did do well 
is even though the Pacers got, you know, got handled in the playoffs against Miami, other than that first game where he was terrible in that first game against Miami, he balled out against Bam Adebayo. He held his own. Uh, yeah. You know, he I mean, he averaged like 18 points, 11 rebounds, and I think almost four and a half blocks. And he shot somewhere close to 60% from the field. So my last impression of him is, wow, now this is what Turner can look like when he's playing the five on both sides of the floor. And he doesn't have to play the five on defense, the four on offense, the way he does with Sabonis, which ultimately leads to, you know, obviously with the cross matching, what happens when these other teams are running a ball down the floor? You end up with, with guys out of position on defense. And and so I think that had as much to do with his underperformance overall. Uh, he made the sacrifice, I think, on both ends of the floor. And his numbers and his performance suffered, where Sabonis became an all-star as a result of what happened last year. I just think it was an uh, just an unfortunate circumstance. Uh, I, and you have to evaluate, uh, Nate. Do you think? And here's the other big question that somebody asked me: um, where, Where's Turner's ceiling? Is he at his ceiling, or do you think there's a huge room for him to grow, or is there just a little bit of room for him to get better? And exactly what does that look like? I think. That's the question that the Pacers have grappled with. Is he at his ceiling or is there a little bit more there? And I think they believe Bjorkren can 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 get him closer and, and, and get better production out of him. And maybe by the time we come to the trade deadline this time, um, you know, he, he, he's, he gets even more value than what he had before. But I, I think Turner still... I think he's still a good player. It's not like he's making $30 million, $35 million a year. Yeah. He's, he's making 18, 17 and a half, $18 million a year. A shot blocking, rim protecting, um, potential 40% three-point shooting big. Um, there are teams that need and want that. And I, I think eventually they're going to have to make a move. And I think that's going to be the move where they could get maybe – I think they'll be able to get something for him better, in my opinion, than, they'll be, than Gordon Hayward. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been very surprised to kind of hear as I talk around the league that that's viewed a, as a negative contract. But yeah, I mean, the hope is that he can become somewhat akin to what Brook Lopez is in Milwaukee and maybe shoot a little better from three. 40% might be a little much because, uh, I mean, I've kind of been waiting for that and he does have that natural touch, but, you know, he hasn't quite been close to that statistically and you imagine that if he's taking more of those you know those shots are gonna be a little bit harder than the ones that he's taking now but the hope is to generate more of those threes um and and the defensive glass is obviously a huge weakness for him also you know that that that's something that has to be acknowledged so despite their best efforts this is essentially the exact same team that they had last year Mm -hmm. who do you see as players who you expect to have a better season this year than they did a year ago I think, you know, better season, Rob, I think, okay, we go with the starters. Uh, I think Brogdon's going to have a better season um, in part because he's most effective when he's off the ball spotting up, uh, whereas McMillan had him playing so much on the ball. I don't think that's the strength of his game. I think it's something that he can sprinkle in. You know, he can run pick and roll, obviously, and he can finish over smaller guards. But, you know, he's not the kind of guy who's going to uh, who's gonna be punching it over people in traffic time after time going off pick and roll. Uh, and uh, I think you're going to see less pick and roll uh, with, with Brogdon. I think he was somewhere around, I want to say, that when I looked at the synergy numbers, that he was somewhere around 43% in terms of his usage in pick and roll as a ball handler last year, which is astronomical. Well, you know, when you consider that, 
you know, when the previous year when he was in Milwaukee, I think he was somewhere around, instead of 43%, he was somewhere around, um, I think, uh, 19%. So I think you're going to see him spotting up more, playing off the ball, which is going to be a little bit more to his strength, and his points per possession is going to be a lot better than what it was this year. Um, the other guy who I think who's going to have a better season is probably T.J. Warren, and it's kind of crazy considering he had such a good season last year. Yeah. Um, but I think he's going to have more – what we saw in a bubble, when we saw him lighten it up from three, he didn't do a lot of that in the regular season, not to that level. He was mostly mid-range focus during the regular season. Uh, and then you see him in a bubble, and he's on fire from three-point range. And, and and that's in part because he didn't play the four as much as I thought he was going to play last year. I think he's going to play more at the four this year. And so um, I, I think you're going to see him get up more three-point shots uh, with Borkman, and you're going to see a little bit more versatility uh, from him, look, he's a scorer. He's not a creator for other people. But I just think the way uh, him stretching the floor a little bit more that we're going to see uh, from him. So that, that's what I see from the starters. Yeah, uh, he's getting, a great transition guy too. I ex- I expect yeah. him to really thrive in that role under Bjorkren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's already an efficient player without. I, I think he's going to be even that much better. Um, you know, the other guy who I'm looking forward to seeing uh, under Bjorkren is Aaron Holiday. Um, I, I think. I think the way he was used, especially last year, you know, uh, T.J. McConnell bumped him out more often than yeah. not when it came down to one or the other. I don't think he's going to run into that this year. I think Bjorkman's going to go more with Aaron Holiday, whereas Nate McMillan was more likely to rely on T.J. McConnell. Yeah, and inevitably, of course, McConnell had to be taken out of the rotation by the end of the playoffs because right. he just wasn't getting guarded. Right, exactly. He wasn't getting guarded. You know, his inability to stretch the floor – that sort of stuff, and Aaron Holiday is a better fit. And plus that pace, uh, getting more possessions, getting up and down, I think he fits that style um, that style a little bit better. So I think those three guys are going to probably get better um, under this new way of playing um, uh, on this roster, I see. Um, but, yeah, I, I think Holiday, you know, Holiday is a guy, you know, by the way, he was mentioned, people were saying, uh, hey, you know, he could get thrown in this trade with, Gordon Hayward to sweeten it up, and I and I, I tweeted this at the time. I was like, he's not going to put it. The Pacers refused to part with him under any circumstance. I was told that he was safe. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean he wouldn't get moved at any other point this upcoming year. We know, look, when it, 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 everybody's safe until the right deal comes along. <laughs> but they're not. They they weren't actively looking to move him as they were when he was a rookie when they were considering some other options. I think I think they believe that him that Aaron Holiday and the Brooklyn is. Has, they really want to see where that goes. Yeah, well, he's the Oladipo insurance too, right? Like he, he yeah. and Brogdon maybe can be your starting backcourt of the future. Just going back quickly to what you said about Brogdon, this is, I, I'm glad you pointed this out. This is incredible. Your memory was impeccable, by the way. It was exactly 43% of the time as a pick and roll ball handler. But if you go down even further, it, people were, oh man, Malcolm Brogdon, 40% three point shooter in Milwaukee. Why was it down at 32%? Well, Malcolm Brogdon took 67 catch-and-shoot jumpers all season. It's basically one per game. And he took 254 jumpers off the dribble. That's so, and I think those, you know, the Pacers were very much an on-ball team. They're very station-to-station. Let's set up the pick-and-roll. The defense is totally set. We're not in transition. Uh, You know, we may have to ISO a lot at the end of the clock, which Brogdon, you know, he's just so much more effective catching the ball with a little bit of an advantage and then that hard driving lefty or righty drive in a straight line catching the defense by surprise and we just didn't see that much of that from him so I think 
that that'll be uh if they can get more ball movement and get him the ball with more of an advantage instead of just setting up i mean he, he had a lot of assists last year but yeah. uh because everything was running through him but i agree with you you know i think they want to have more of a multiple ball handler approach and they don't necessarily have a true point guard on this team but that's in toronto they do have true point guards but they still were you know lowry van fleet like they had other guys who are handling the ball um or i shouldn't say other guys but more than one ball handler and they had just a lot more movement overall so i think that's what bjorkren is going to try and bring here in in theory yeah it's cra- it's crazy when i looked at brogdon's numbers and as the pick and roll ball handle i'm like oh my god he's he's more than doubled his usage with the paces of the pick and roll ball handle and he had that one game in the playoffs i think it was with miami where he balled out like he was you know he had like 35 37 points he was making everything you know he was going off the bounce pick and roll getting to the rim finishing the problem with that is is even though he was really good in that game. Th- th- that's Those are going to be diminishing returners. You cannot do that night after night after night. So even though he had a really good game, by the time they got to the fourth quarter, the, the, the effectiveness, the points per possession started to go down. And so even though he may have statistically has, has a good game, he had there as the pick-and-roll ball handler, just overall that offense, it, they became so one-dimensional relying on isolations. Because, yeah, every time – Every time Miami switched, um, they, they didn't. They weren't sure what to do. And what killed me was those last couple of seeding games. They played Miami twice in seeding games. And so I had done a video breakdown where I said, okay, this is what the Pacers are doing in the seeding games. They're getting Bam out of bio on switches. They can't possibly be. They can't possibly plan to do this. They're probably testing him out to see what they can get away with. They can't possibly carry this over into the playoffs, and they actually carry it over into the playoffs. <laughs> and it's like you can't—you're not going to win playing that way. And that's not the best way, you know. Brogdon, I was told, was among the most discontent with the way and the style of basketball they played. It's just too labor-intensive. The points were just too tough to come by. Even when they scored, they scored. It seemed like it was pulling teeth. Whereas my oh, yeah. scored easily. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And now Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house. 
get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easy to slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas i'm going to be freezing but the american giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside and things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us and, and it's funny because i think brogdon wanted to come to indiana to have a larger on-ball role and then i think he realized that you know that wasn't necessarily the way that they were going to to win i'll throw out turner as well as someone i think can can possibly be better uh just by taking more three-pointers having that be more uh, of an emphasis um but let's turn to Victor Oladipo now. Um, you know, I, I know he had a, an interview you were tweeting about today. Uh, what do you expect from him this season? Uh, that's that's tough. I mean, his I mean his efficiency was like cut in half uh, last season in the 19 games he played, not including the playoffs, uh, compared to what he was in that first season in 2017-18. Right. Uh, so I think he has no choice. The only place he can go is up. <laughs> the question is exactly how far up is that going to be? Is that going to be 2017-18 Oladipo? Or is it just going to be slightly better than last year? Um, I, 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 you know, everything is contingent on his knee. Assuming everything is everything and he's at least healthy. I, I think his, his, you know, his, his you know, he would he average 14.5 a game. I think he can get closer to 20 and all of those sorts of things. Uh, but, you know, the biggest difference I saw with Oladipo in the bubble uh, is that defensively he was just an open door. Uh, yeah, he was awful. Like, he Duncan Robinson destroyed him. He was an open door. And that's where – so I know we look at, oh, his, his points per possession on a pick and – I mean, like he's, you know, some of his numbers. If you look at him on the pick and roll as the ball handler and off the cut and isolation, all of those numbers are down drastically, right? So it's like we always look at offensive numbers, and, and you know, obviously that's important. But for me, I looked at his defense, just the, the eye test that he could not slide and stay in front of even the most basic of ball handlers. 
And I think that's more of the thing I'd be worried about with him going forward, which is more of a tell about his the health of his knee than anything. Um, and so, I mean, that that was so far a cry, so, so far of a cry from the guy that made all defense uh, a couple of years ago. Um, that's where I see, that's what I'm looking for most when it comes to Oladipo. And and, and if, if his leg isn't right and he's not able to stay in front of Duncan Robinson on bounce, what do you think his balance is going to probably be on some of these jump shots where, you know, his balance didn't always look good either. And I think, but yeah. I, for me, I look at the defense and his inability to stay in front of people as being, and by the way, going back, and I'll tie that back into Turner. Turner wasn't as good on defense this year in part because they were getting smoked so badly on the wings if a wing was guarding somebody who wasn't named Justin Holiday, the defense was getting compromised so much by guards who couldn't stay in front of their man. That was part of the problem. That was as big of a problem for them defensively. We haven't even talked about them as a team defense, but Oladipo's individual defense. Uh, I, I, that's a big question mark for me more so than anything about his offense. Yeah, I mean, with Robinson, what struck me was, was more getting back cut or just not being able to stay with them and and obviously you know he's a, a difficult guy to guard um and you mentioned that his jump shot Oladipo to me it's one of two things is gonna have to happen I mean number one he's back to being the player that he was offensively uh in 17-18 where you know, it's worth giving him the ball that much where he's really gonna be the primary guy or his role and frankly his mentality are going to have to be reduced because the way that he was playing the quality of shots that he was taking were atrocious you know long twos off the dribble contested couldn't get any separation couldn't get to the rim couldn't finish at the rim uh, when he did get there you know i mean that was what part of what was so special about him in 17 18 was he really improved his finishing over his time in orlando and, and okc which is that had been a big problem for him and now it's back to being a problem again and so he still seemed to me to have this star mentality i'm proving i'm gonna prove that i'm back i need to show that i'm worthy of a max contract in the summer of 2021 you know i'm gonna go out here and be the big star again but because he wasn't actually able to generate good shots he's like well i have to take shots still so he would just take bad shots instead Mm -hmm. and I, i thought it looked really really ugly and so Something is going to have to change. Like he, he cannot play the way that he played in the bubble for this entire Pacers season. Like it's just, it's not going to work. Yeah, and I, to me, I, somebody was asking me about Victor, and that's the thing that I ran into. I was like, well, he wants max money, you know, in free agency. He wants to be a max player. He's betting on himself. All of these things, right? But something's going to have to give between that and if he if he wants to be the alpha dog in the locker room. Because Brogdon's actually, you know, considered the main voice in that locker room. Like, how do you manage all of these competing things? Like, you're looking out for yourself. You're looking out for your financial security. Understandable, your career. Got it. He has the right to do that. But then you have these team goals. And how does he fit into the dynamic of the team? And I'm not sure. And he has to be... He has to be willing to back off of some of that, I believe, uh, in order to make this engine run at optimum rate. If he does that, though, is he a max player? And the answer right. to that obviously would be no. And that's and that, by the way, that's provided that he's fully healthy. Now, if he's fully healthy, if he's the 17, 18 on the depot again, all of this is a non-issue, right? He's 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 the guy they're going to give the ball to and to boogie with it and to do whatever he wants. But he can't he can't 
his, you know, th- there were some times where he got into the lane, he got some separation, and he couldn't finish. Like, at first, yeah. I thought he couldn't get separation, nor could he finish. Then he was able to get separation to get past his man, but then that final move, he could not complete it consistently. Um, and, yeah, and you're right, man. His, his shot selection, I mean, you know, he, he took some really bad shots. And I don't know if that's a product of ego, um, you know, obviously trying to force it. Um, uh, and if, if Nate Yorkman is going to be able to convince him, I think that's where the Pacers believe that having – and I think that's why they, they want to see what not just Aaron Holiday, who I mentioned, Turner Sabonis. They want to see how – if you can't get along with this new coach in his way of doing things and his approach – then I guess they can ultimately say, hey, we tried it. We used this guy who, if, if you have a problem with him, then the problem is you. <laughs> because they're thinking that Bjorkren can get this ship going in the right direction. But, yeah, it's going to take Oladipo conceding and maybe sliding back in some spots a little bit. I gave him a high compliments during one game in the bubble, and I can't remember what it was, where he basically took a backseat and allow Brogdon and some of the other guys to do what they did. And all he did was play help defense. He was really good on help defense. And he helped get in the passing lanes and get them out in transition. And Oladipo didn't have great numbers, but he helped the team win. But he took a back seat in that game. And I, I, I see that's the guy he may have to be more often than what he's accustomed to being in order for them to get, you know, to be a good team. But that guy then isn't a max player if he does that. And that's kind of what he got. He has to work out with himself. So there's a talk that he didn't want to be in Indiana. Now, of course, in, in today's comments, he was adamant that, no, I never said that, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I mean, for, for me here at 10,000 feet, you're you're at, uh, you know, 500 feet, and I'm at 10,000 in this situation. But what it sounded like to me was he had his trade demand. They tried to move him. Nobody was interested. And they came back to him and said, hey, we tried to move move you. The way you played, nobody's interested. Nobody wants to give you a big contract extension. So the only way this is going to work out is if you come back and play the good soldier and rebuild your value. Is that that about right, you think, of what's happening? I I think that's closer to the truth than, you know, it's funny. Like, like people believe that what they hear on record, well, see, this is obviously the truth. There's what you hear on record and then obviously the kind of stuff that, you know, what's said and what happens behind the scenes and, you know, you know, I think Oladipo's in a position where he's about as loyal as his options right now. And, <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you, you got to love Indiana because that's 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 the only thing that's willing to be committed to you right now. Um, and I, look, he could. And by the way, he could like Indiana. He could love Indiana. He could love the Pacers. That doesn't mean that you still, despite liking or loving Indiana, that you wouldn't want to play anywhere else. It doesn't mean one half, you know, that they are completely, that they can't be completely separate ideas. Like you can, I mean, you can like playing in Orlando, but you want to play in Indiana. You could like playing in Indiana, but you want to play in New York. Like you can, you don't necessarily have to hate Indiana to want to leave. Um, look, uh, the Knicks was were a team that was mentioned, obviously, a lot leading into the offseason. And, um, I don't know if I reported it. I just tweeted this. Uh, I think I had it in one of my stories, actually. It was a report where I mentioned that, you know, New York was an option uh, given the right circumstances. But I was told New York had cooled on him, in part because his previous agent, Leon Rose, who he fired, uh, wasn't as high on him as Scott Perry, 
who's the general manager of the team, who drafted him in Orlando. Of course. Um, and so, you know, and obviously he didn't finish the season well. Um, there's questions about can he be a max guy again? Was he willing to commit? Uh, and then, of course, you got to get down to dollars and cents. I mean, if he's going to request, if he's going to demand a max salary and you're going to trade for him, are you willing to give him a max salary based on what you've seen so far? Uh, most teams that are reasonable will say no. They need to see they need to see him play well this year before they make that decision. I think it's more of a function of that than anything else. Uh, but I mean, what do people expect Oladipo to say? Should he say today, "Nah, I don't really want to play in the NBA. I hate it. I've always wanted to leave." Of course, he's not going to say. <laughs> yeah. He's not going to say that. I like when people try to use that as evidence of something. <laughs> it's like it's you know it's he wants to play in a bigger market. You know, I reported back in July that Miami was his first choice. And it is his first choice, all things being equal. But and, and I, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I mean, it's like, you know, if he wants to go to a bigger market, a play in Miami, a play in New York, I think that's okay. I don't think he should be he should be vilified for that. He's a free agent. He's going to be a free agent. It's his call. Because at the end of the day, Nate, he's taking the risk. If he doesn't take with the Pacers, you know, I don't know what the Pacers have offered him recently, if anything. I know uh, they have an open-door policy. They've been willing to sit down and work out an extension with him for the past year and a half. They've told him that he's never come knocking on their door to say, let's talk extension. But by not taking the bird in hand with this money, if he hits the market next summer and he's betting on himself this year, he's the one that's taking the most risk. So yeah. you know, he, he could have $100 million or close to $100 million in his pocket right now with an extension. So if he chooses that he wants to try to play in a bigger market and he wants to take the risk by not signing a deal to stay in Indiana now, that's his prerogative. That's his money. That's the risk he's willing to take, and he should be allowed to do it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Well, he could have done the John Wall just no comment when he asked when he's asked if he if he did a trade. All right. Well, let's talk more about what we expect from this team mm-hmm. this year. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling, the collide of football pads, the squeak of shoes on a basketball court, the crack of the bat on a home run, the slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, 
cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. How do you see the rotation shaking out uh, among the, this team, which is a, a relatively deep team, uh, but obviously with Jeremy Lamb injured, you know, I, I'm not sure whether he's going to be able to play it all this year or or how well. Um, so, uh, how do you see the rotation shaking out for this group? Let's start at the guard position. Well, I mean, I see Aaron Holiday being the first guard off the bench, um, but I also think. Um, uh, and, and I see in TJ McConnell, like I said, who's an everyday rotation guy. I see him as being, you know, a guy who may play once every three games or once every couple of games. Yeah. And maybe do spot duty. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think he's option one uh, in this situation. The other thing I, I expect them and someone to get more burnt. Um, I, I was, I, and you're, I assume you're predicting an all-star appearance for him this year. <laughs> I don't know about an all-star appearance, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you, you've uh, you've been high on him bef- before in our in our conversations. I, I, I've, as been I very, recall. I, I've been very high on him, especially defensively. But if you go by what what's been said by the team about the style of play they want to play, uh, that means they want Evan Sumner on the floor. Yeah, uh, I mean it's 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 it's. I mean Evan Sumner is not going to be a guy who is going to excel for you in the half court, at least right not right now. But if you're going to try to play this fast-paced, high-possession, open-court style of getting up and down, there's not too many. When you when you rate athletes on this team, like pure athletes, he's at the top. Um, yeah, I, I just worry that he can't shoot at all. That's my only concern. He's got to f- find a way to score a little bit better in the half court. Yeah, which is why I think the open court style. Yeah, he's not. He's not a. Yeah. He's not a. You know, he he he's not a spot up shooting shooting guard or anything like that. But he can get up and down the floor. And by the way, man, there, there are times that this team was so bad, so bad defensively at the guard position last year, especially when it came to defending small guards like those Kimba Walker, Devontae Graham type of guys, or smaller. You know, not these you know big six foot eight guards, but these little smaller guards. They had trouble keeping these guys in front of them. Victor couldn't keep them in front. Brogdon had trouble keeping them in front. Guys like Justin Holiday and Edmund Sumner were the best suited to do that. And that's why I believe, aside from the open court style of being able to get some easy buckets with a guy like Sumner, who finishes very well in transition, that staying in front of some of these speedy guards, um, he's built for that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's certain situations where he's going to fit. And there's certain situations, obviously, that he won't because of his shooting. But uh, I think you're going to see him get more of an opportunity more consistently. I don't think you're going to see Sumner playing in a game, and then we don't see him for seven or eight games until there's like maybe a blowout. I think you're going to see him sprinkled in consistently so that maybe he can finally catch a rhythm and do something. Yeah, so that seems like those four guys, uh, you know, McConnell and Sumner, uh switching off with one another maybe in the rotation as, as the fourth guard and then uh at small forward tj warren with justin holiday backing him up and and i imagine maybe we'll see some of warren mm-hmm. at the four particularly on bench units and then maybe holiday is your three with those groups yeah right and I, that that was their big achilles heel last year they kept using holiday you know as a backup four 
uh, probably more often than they should have. And Holiday played well at the backup four at times. But, you know, if you look at key games that they lost last year, the one that sticks out to me is when they were still looking for that signature win last year. We go into Philadelphia. It was like November 30th, right after the holiday. And they had that game won. And what does Philadelphia do um, in the third quarter to close the double-digit deficit? They go to Tobias Harris. They empty that side of the floor. And they have him go at Justin Holiday, who was in position, who defended him well, but who was physically too small. And, yeah. and, and I like Holiday against smaller guys, yes. uh, like getting over screens or uh, yes. or tracking shooters. Yes, he's excellent at that. I mean, J- Jordan Clarkson still has nightmares based off the way. If, if you look, go back and look at what Holiday did to Jordan Clarkson in Utah last year, the Pacers got absolutely decimated. Jordan Clarkson, however, got owned by Justin Holiday. That was the only highlight of the game. Uh, for the Pacers, that Jordan Clarkson tried to isolate repeatedly against Justin Holiday and got completely obliterated. And that's where he's most effective. But you can play with him in spots against some of these bigger guys and maybe get a few quick, cheap buckets. But ultimately, I thought they stuck with him too long in key situations, and he was just too small for some of these more powerful, physically dominant guys at the four. And so that's why I see... T.J. Warren, who's at least more physically, he's not as good as a, a, a defender in space as Justin Holiday on the ball, but he is more physical and able to take some of that contact. And I think that's why he might be, it may be more beneficial for them to slot him at him in at the four and let Justin play at the three where he plays best. And you're right, chasing guards, you know that that's what he's, you know, he's really good. You know, six six, really long and athletic, kind of like uh, Edmund Sumner, good at recovering. Um, and getting back into a play and contesting shots and getting deflections. So then the big question, of course, is are Sabonis and Turner mm-hmm. going to start together, and are those guys going to finish games together? I don't think they'll finish games. I mean, even McMillan started splitting them at the end of games, um, and I think that's going to be on a case-by-case basis uh, on the matchup. And I-, I totally see, as we mentioned earlier, a scenario where you know sometimes – you know, when, when they were in Toronto, Gasol started. Other times, Ibaka started. Sometimes you had them both in there together, depending on how things are going. I think that's the, what there's no way they're going to not start Sabonis. No, like no, no, after no, he no. made the All Star no, team, no, like they, he's no, they're yeah. going to they're going to start Sabonis. I don't think they're necessarily yeah. going to end every game with Sabonis. It's going to depend on what the situation is. Um, that would that would be shocking. Shocked to me. There, there could be a, a Pacers fan Twitter revolt <laughs> if uh, All Star Demonis Sabonis does not start. Yeah, or, can, or does not finish games. You can I mean, you have to. I mean, if we're talking about a new way of playing the game, um, yeah. You, you you know, there's some people who are a really good matchup for Sabonis, and some people, other players who are a terrible matchup. And Turner's, but look, Turner, Turner is not as good. For instance, if you're going towards the end of a game and it's crunch time, and somebody's got to go against Joel Embiid, I'm probably going to take Sabonis over Miles Turner, right? Um, uh, no doubt, I'm gonna probably take Sabonis. If it's gonna be Utah and you're playing against Rudy Gobert, I'm probably gonna take Turner um, because stylistically, with to Turner's ability to stretch and to either pull him away from the rim, or if he's gonna sit back and give you that shot, I feel better about Turner in that situation than I feel about Sabonis. I think it's a case by case basis. Yeah, I, I mean that's how I would approach it as well. I I just think it, that after having made the All Star team, that 
Sabonis not starting would be very con- or not finishing games would be very controversial. Even though I I completely agree with you, I hope that uh, Bjorkren will have the balls to do what needs to be done at, at the end of games and and gives them what he thinks the best chance to win yeah. will be. And then how about as the the backup big situation? How do you see that's shaken out? Um, now that's a, that's a tr- that's a tricky one because I don't. But but Taze, who I think is a good player, I don't know where his confidence is because he didn't. <sighs> You know, he had that that point last year where he early where it looked like, oh, okay, he's going to be okay and he's going to progressively get better. Then he just kind of fell off a cliff, and I think Nate lost confidence in him. Nate McMillan did. Um, his teammates had no confidence in him. Um, I, I found uh, the backup big, who's not really a true five, <laughs> Jakar Sampson. Um, yeah. the guy that when you look at every single time now, – now that's a guy who, you know, I kind of look at like Edmund Sumner in this way. There were times where you would see them play a game and they would be great. You know, they might might play only ten minutes and, and Samson would have a great impact and he would help them get over the hump and win a game. I'm thinking about like when they went to Chicago and I think Samson had to start and I think they were missing like three starters and granted Chicago wasn't a great team, but they ran Chicago out of the gym and Jakar Samson was fantastic. And then you don't see Jakar Samson for three, four, five games. And and you know, and sometimes TJ Leaf not not often, but every now and then TJ Week would get some of the minutes in here and there. But Samson pretty much supplanted him in the rotation. But I thought Samson's energy, even though he's undersized, it's a classic case of Samson's so undersized, you can't play him for twenty five minutes against an MB. But you can yeah. get you can get away with a three or four minute spurt where you're pay, you got him on the floor with Aaron Holiday and Doug McDermott is on the other side, um, is on the weak side of the floor running off of screens, uh, drawing the defense because of his three-point shooting, Jakar Sampson slashing to the rim. I mean, and, and, and Aaron Holiday with his three-point shooting ability just opens the floor, and you have kind of all of this movement. And for that three minutes, you can end up turning a five-point deficit into a ten-point lead. And then you might have to pull him because, you know, you can't have him playing against a guy like Embiid in the low post play after play after play when the play when, when the game slows down. I think that's where Jakar Sampson is so valuable. He gives them that energy and that pace, and they, there's this kind of pep in their step that the team seems to have whenever Sampson is on the floor. I mean, I think last year was against Boston. He had two consecutive thunderous dunks, one of them off an offensive rebound, a one-hand putback, and the next time I think it was a similar play. Like, that's the kind of stuff Jakar Samson does to energize yeah. the team. And and I think he's the backup big, even though he's not really a big, he's more of a forward. Um, I like the kind of pace that he brings in, that he gives him more, more of that than, say, Turner or Sabonis because he can get up and down the floor. And I think he really flourishes with that fast-paced style of basketball that they're trying to play. Yeah, and maybe he could kind of be – play with Turner on the second unit where they really struggled with rebounding and physicality and, you know, allow Turner's spacing to kind of let him be the center on offense. And then he can do some more switching and mucking things up defensively next to Turner because they've really struggled with Turner as the lone big these last couple of years. Uh, Whereas the Sabonis focused second units uh, have always been really good. And, you know, the handoff game with McDermott and lots of spacing and letting Sabonis go eat in the post and, and be the hub. So maybe that's something that they could could give a try to. Um, anything you see as like a big strength of this team that we haven't hit on yet? 
I mean, I think I, I think they have. You know, you, if you still have Sabonis, you can still play through. I don't think they're going to play through the post with the way they play with McMillan, which is basically give it to Sabonis, let him go one on one, and just kill you with twos. Which you know, obviously, if you if all you need is two points, I guess you know, in your crunch part of the game, you can do that. Yeah, I think you're going to use Sabonis more in that position to set up guys for threes into because he's such a good passer. I think his assist number—he averaged five a game last year, which is pretty good. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if his his assist numbers went up. Maybe his points come down a little bit, but his assist numbers go up somewhat because they can use him as a hub to feed these shooters and some of this off-ball movement they're hoping to create to get more layups and open three-point shots. I so I still see Sabonis his ability to make other guys better is still a strength. Now, is he still going to be all-star Sabonis uh, based on the way they play? I don't I don't know. I think maybe some of those numbers across the board can take a hit, except for his assists. Um, but he can make some other guys better on the team. But um, I, I, I think that's a strength. And you just mentioned McDermott, and I actually meant to mention him earlier. I mean, if you want to see how important Sabonis is to Doug McDermott, look at McDermott in the restart and the playoffs without Sabonis. <laughs> yeah night and day um because 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 turner's handle and ability to distribute the way sabonis does out on that floor especially from the high post isn't as good because he can't you know he doesn't handle the ball as well and sabonis is a better screener and they're just they're just in a little bit more symmetry uh and, and you really have an option when you play that handoff game between sabonis and mcdermott you have the option of the ball getting back fed inside to Sabonis where he can post up and get an easy two, whereas you don't really have that option. Uh, it's not as strong with, with Miles Turner. And they can kind of sell out and run at Doug McDermott. So uh, I, I think uh, I think Doug McDermott's success in his efficiency last year was so tied to Sabonis. Um, I, I, you, you couldn't get, you know, that, that was very clear uh, in, the, in the restart. Uh, so, yeah, I think – so, so the strength of the team. Look, they have they they have good shooters. You know, we talked about Brogdon having to get off the ball a little bit more. I still think you know Justin Holiday had a career year shooting the ball from three. Um, uh, I think Turner's going to have a better year shooting the ball from three. How much better? I don't know, but I think he may get closer to that thirty-seven to thirty-eight percentile range. So, this is a good three-point shooting team. Um, uh, of course, you know, I guess we'll eventually get to the weaknesses, but, you know, the question is, is this team going to be athletic enough and have the quick enough triggers to kind of get off some of these shots? Uh, you know, because the, the one thing that, 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 that's been their Achilles heel is, you know, as good of a shooting team and disciplined they are in so many ways, they're not necessarily the most athletically gifted team from top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, they just don't have that one star that you need on the perimeter. If you just look at who their best player is compared to some of their competition in the Eastern Conference, that that player is not as good. That ultimately is probably why you'd have to have them, you know, really more in that second tier of the East where they've been for, you know, it seems like quite some time now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, they're, 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 they've gotten better at least, you know, with being able to use Justin Holiday and TJ Warren on the wing um, and, and those sorts of things. But yet... <laughs> That they're not, they haven't been the last few years. They haven't been very athletic. They haven't been very long um, in a lot of ways. And it, it's, you know, in last season, I thought you saw it more so than anything else. It, it, we talk about weaknesses. You know, this was a team that 
was defined by its defense under Nate McMillan. And for me, that was the most disappointing part of, of this entire team last year. I thought defensively, they were by and large terrible most a lot of time. Not most of the time. And they that's, had to that's, a, that's a tough statement for a team that was the sixth six ranked defense they got people might mm-hmm. be like hey they're six in defense how can mm-hmm. you say that but you you feel that they still underperform their potential if you look at the way they play against the better teams defensively in key situations um yeah i didn't think they were very good and when i say that they had to junk up let, let's put it this way they had dan burke who was kind of the defensive coordinator last year yeah. They made a lot of adjustments to the defense once we got around the all-star break, um, you know, where they, they stop ice and ball screens. The, their inability to defend the slot cut alone was infuriating. Um, teams lived off of layups because they couldn't defend slot cuts. It was it was unbelievable how bad they were at doing it. The dribble penetration they routinely gave up by the guards. I mean, this is pre and this is pre Oladipo coming back too. So, you know, it's not just because Victor wasn't very good on defense last year coming off of his injury. Uh, Brogdon didn't do the greatest job standing in front of some of the smaller guards. That's why you saw, like, when they played Boston, you would sometimes see Brogdon defending Jalen Brown, and they would take him off Kimball Walker. Um, standing in front of those kind of guards is a little bit problematic for him, and the ball kept living inside the paint. Now, um, defensively, they just made so many bonehead plays. I was thinking about, too— uh, they lost the game to Brooklyn in February, and there was a key point. I think it was Joe Harris who hits the go-ahead three that wins the game. It's 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 a it's a it's a dribble pitch between Dinwiddie and Joe Harris, and Brogdon gets screened off by Joe Harris, and Justin Holiday, who's defending Dinwiddie, is 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 staying with is staying with Dinwiddie, okay, who has the ball. Joe Harris. Uh, goes out to the wing. He spreads to the wing. Malcolm Brogdon still goes with Spencer Dinwiddie. Justin Holiday is in position to defend him. Brogdon leaves Joe Harris spotting up from the slot for a wide open three. It's It was like that play was replicated at least a dozen times in crunch times of games, of key games that I can remember. So hmm. even though the Pacers statistically were good overall, they were good at beating some of these other teams that were at their level or a little bit lower. But when you saw them play teams, and Brooklyn obviously wasn't a great team by any stretch of the imagination, but that's where really good teams exploited them. Like in those key situations in fourth quarters, I would say they probably would have had five, six more wins had they just made better decisions in situations like that, where they just completely botched coverages. And I don't think it's because they were bad, uh, that they weren't trying Uh, it's that there was always confusion when it came to when to switch and when to stay with your man. Uh, And I think part of that was just a product of them getting beat so routinely off the dribble by some of these guards that it just just led to some chaos. And I'll go back again to, you know, Miles Turner not being as good defensively last year. I think that had a lot to do with it as well. So um, I, I I, I just don't see them. They weren't the same team defensively. If you go back to the team that they were in 2017 when they forced the Cavaliers to seven games with LeBron, that team defensively, it's no contest. This year's team, compared to that team defensively, it's no contest. That team in 17 was light years better. I don't care what any statistics have. You can tell me whatever statistics you got, don't care. That team was light years better and more connected defensively than this past team. 
Yeah, I think a little more versatility to the scheme might help them uh, as well with with Bjorkren. You know, I I think they they eventually, my recollection is, went to switching in that uh, Miami series to deal with some of the handoffs, but it took them three and a half games or three games to to do that. Maybe it was maybe two. I think it was by game three. They made a bunch of adjustments there. So having a little more scheme versatility, Bjorkren obviously comes from that uh, Toronto culture where they basically were switching up their defense all the time so I, I think maybe that's it. and they do have some some good defenders i think they got some decent personnel to do some switching in, in certain lineups or maybe even to go to some zone with the two bigs you know that's something that zone a lot of times can work better with two bigs so you don't have sabonis trying to close out to the three-point line uh if he and turner are, are playing together um yeah. you ready for some predictions here oh boy uh yeah sure all right, so I, I'll uh, I, I got my spreadsheet ready to translate uh, an 82 game record into a 72 game record here. So <laughs> okay, uh, I will go first uh, and uh, give a little background here. The Pacers ended up after the bubble when they played really well, but you know some of those weren't real games uh, to end up getting the four seed in the end. But that didn't matter because uh, there's no home court. Uh, they ended up being one of the luckier teams in basketball last year. They uh, we're on a 51 win pace over uh, an 82 games, uh, but their expected wins based on their point differential was only 47. So they're really played about the quality of a 47 win team last year. So that was, that was uh, like the third or fourth most lucky team in basketball, uh, according to cleaning the glass. So with 47 wins uh, last year, I think this team has a lot of volatility. I think they have some pretty good upside, but I'm going to predict they'll play at a 46 win pace this year, which would put them at 40 wins this season, <laughs> 40, 40 and 32. Oh, okay. Well, man, we're close because I had them at 41 and 30. Okay. Yeah. So we're in the same ballpark when it comes to that. Yeah. So, so give, give me a little bit of rationale for why you, that's your uh, prediction. Well, number one, you have essentially the same core. Um, and I think I think Bjorkman's going to uh, is going to steal some victories that some of the games that they lost last year that they should have won. I think some of the uh, you know while we look at other teams in the league in the Eastern Conference you know who who've gotten better like a team like Atlanta for instance. So you know you figure some of these some of these other teams are moving up uh, behind the Pacers and, and going to be competing uh, a little bit more tougher with them or more difficult outs than that they were in previous years yeah 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 but i I think i think having i i I think there's a the question for me with the pacers i think they're going to be pretty consistent and in that same space uh in the first year with bjorken which i think is actually a win for them because they're going to be doing so many things differently um i think not having a big fall off or a big drop off is going to be a success because the question for them isn't even the regular season anyway they're going to judge their success by the postseason, getting out of the first round. Um, so I think that's ultimately how they're going to judge their success, not by regular season wins. I think they're right. I think by them being able to stay in the same position with some teams behind them getting better, even though 41 and 31 doesn't sound great, I still think that's if you get if they get to the 40s of any sort, if it's 40 wins or 41 wins, I think that's a I think that's a really really good season. I think it's still a good regular season team as they're built. And they've been a good regular season team for years now. The question for them is the postseason anyway. It's not regular season. Yeah, uh, although, you know, if they're the seventh or eighth seed, uh, that makes it a lot harder to win a series than if you're six or five or four. True. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think this team does, as we start moving into talking about their best case scenario, I do think they have a lot of upside. I mean, there's, you could say that, hey, maybe McMillan's offensive philosophy was really holding them back. And Miles Turner is going to bomb eight threes a game the way Jaron Jackson does in Memphis. And he's going to make them in the high 30s. And Oladipo is going to come back. He says he's feeling much better. Once again, what the hell else is he going to say? But nonetheless, uh, you know, maybe he comes back and really gives them something. And and the offense uh, and the transition looks a lot better. And this is a team that can get into the lower end of the top 10 in offense. So TJ Warren starts bombing more threes the way he was in the bubble. And Sabonis takes a, another step forward as well. And they still have some of the best depth in the NBA. And so, you know, all of that, I think you could construct a narrative where I could see this team even getting to playing at a 54 win pace, which would be uh, 47 wins uh, overall. Uh, now, do I think that all of these question marks go right? Like, not necessarily, but they could. Yeah, yeah, they could. And, and I, I, that's where I think that's where I think having Bjorkman is going to matter the most because you know I was thinking about when I said the games that they lost last year that they should have won, where I think they'll be managed better late. You know, I think about how they had Dallas. You know, they had Dallas. They lost a game in Dallas, or I think it was in no, I think it was in Indianapolis. They they it's five minutes left. They only trail by three points. And 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 this is a perfect example of when I'm getting back to also when I I complained about their defense. They foul a lot because they are out of position and getting beat off the bounce a lot. And if you even go back, wasn't there the um, the playoff game by the way where they sent Miami to the line like 50 times or 53 times or something? <laughs> It was, it was, let, me, let me look that up. It was, actually, it was yeah. ridiculous, and quite. And McMillan, I never forget, complained about all the whistles. And look, you know, I understand that, but quite frankly, they deserve most of those whistles. And you know, if I go back to the Dallas game in the regular season at home, they 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 sent Dallas to the free throw line six times in a row, and Dallas went six for six to pull out a win that the Pacers should have had, just because of just bad discipline. We talked about that Raptors game. Remember, the Pacers led like by 11 points, like with three minutes left. I mean, Toronto should yeah. be emptying its bench and putting putting its its um, you know put garbage time. And what what happens? Toronto makes like five of their last six shots. The Pacers can't even get the ball past half court, and they lose that game. Um, and it's it's just it, 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 there's a game against the Pelicans where they they were up to like three or four minutes left in the game or in. And the Pelicans end up going four for five, not the most efficient offense in the NBA. The Pelicans shoot the lights out to end the game and win that game on the road. So there's just countless places where I see the Pacers lost games last year because of bad offense and defense that I think they'll be better organized under under Nate Borkman and have a better idea of what to do and how to close these games. And as a result, so yeah, they what, won 45 games last year, I think. Easily, they could have won 51 to 52 games last year. And so I would say the best case scenario that they'll win more of these games under Bjorken than they lose. Uh, best case scenario, I'd say they could win 45. Yeah, yeah. So that would be the equivalent of like, you know, a 52, 51, 52 win team normally. Um, how about worst case scenario? Worst case scenario, um, Oladipo is done, is, a, is an elite player. Um Turn. Yeah, but but he shoots like he's not. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> he shoots like he's not. And Miles Turner, it turns out, is at his ceiling, and there's no more room to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if those two things, then then I think you're looking at like I still think it's a, a team that has a winning record. Um, but I would say worst case scenario, they'd be like 30, 
37 and 35. Yeah, the, I, I had it at 30, 36 and 36, so uh, right around 500. I mean, you can throw in, I mean, again, when I talk about worst case scenario, I'm not talking about like, you know, star player misses the whole season. But when you look at Oladipo as an injury risk and clearly he's going to be load managed, clearly even the slightest tweak, you know, it's going to need to be a three-week absence for him. Uh, and rightfully so, I mean, given what the history is there and his history with the organization. And then Brogdon is an injury risk uh, as well. You know, he always seems to end up missing 20% of the games. And yep. Sabonis says he's healthy and no restrictions coming off the plantar fasciitis, but that's uh, an injury that you know, can recur uh, at times. So I do think there's uh, some concern from an injury standpoint. Warren is he's missed time before but those are kind of freak injuries i think he'll he's not a huge injury risk i would say turner is usually pretty healthy but um so i i think yeah right around 500 is what i'd see as as yeah i i might even go a little below that actually i'm gonna, I'm gonna go down to uh 34 wins as, as a worst case scenario for them just because it, you know if oladipo or turner gets traded or they start off poorly and guys get injured you know you could see there maybe being a little bit of a retrenchment from a, a personnel standpoint and playing some younger players and you know where i mean they'll try and make the playoffs as as the eighth seed but maybe they also would try to build a little bit more for the long term yeah yeah there's no doubt there's a think there's a thought process here that they're thinking more long term and that might mean sacrificing a few games on the regular season maybe you play some of these young guys like edmund sumner a little bit more and aaron holiday and try out some combinations that might ultimately cost you a few reg- regular season games but that it ultimately makes you better yeah. long term. And, yeah. and they probably want Batadze to get some tick as well. I would imagine to try to try to get a little bit of confidence. Um, you, they need a a traditional backup big because Samson's not going to work in every situation. And they may also be looking to trade Turner as well. And so, but they need to figure out whether Batadze can be their backup if Sabonis is the starter. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, and it, it's, you know, I, I'm really curious about Batadze and I don't know, I would imagine his development will, will impact a lot. Maybe the decision making going forward with Miles Turner and these other bigs, um, because they were at times last year that Batadze, I wasn't sure if he understood basketball. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, he's got to make a shot too. Wasn't he like 18% from three or something like that? Yeah. I mean, if, if he if he can't make a shot, he doesn't have anything to do offensively. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you a perfect example of a game. When they lost in Charlotte, the first time they met Charlotte, uh, it was another one. Oh, I remember that game. Yeah, they, they gave up some pretty ugly leads in that one. Oh, yeah. They had it, was like, it went into like double overtime, didn't right. it? They had that game won. They went by double digits. Um, Charlotte uh, Biombo comes in in the fourth quarter. He hadn't played all game because Charlotte figures out, hey, we need to put Biombo in. And so Biombo was matched up with Bataze. And so what did they start doing when Malcolm Brogdon was bringing up the ball against Devontae Graham? Biombo would just go double the ball. I mean, they paid no attention to Bataze because they knew he wasn't looking to shoot. All Bataze had to do when his man went to Brogdon is basket cut. The ball could either split the two or it could go over the top, and there was nobody there to do to defend him. What does Bataze do? He goes away from Brogdon and tries to scream from McDermott lifting out of the court. <laughs> it's like all you had to do was get behind the trap, and he did that repeatedly because he wasn't looking for his own shot. So Charlotte was defending against four with five, 
And the Pacers couldn't get the ball up the floor. They couldn't get a good shot. Bataze, and so they lost, his, his teammates lost confidence in him. Uh, I was told by somebody that, hey, you know, they lost confidence in giving him the ball. But that was in part because Bataze wasn't looking for the ball. So it was, you know, it was all kind of interconnected. Um, and, and that's what I mean, that they just seem to panic in situations like that late that just are mind-blowing to me. And it is Bataze, look, his, his basketball IQ has got to be better than that. But he wasn't looking – you could tell he wasn't confident in shooting the basketball. Uh, it's not that he can't shoot. Uh, it's that, you know, I think he just decided he shouldn't look for a shot. And when he started doing that, nobody was guarding him, and they shouldn't. All right, man. Well, thanks again for coming on. This was fantastic. You can follow him on Twitter at ThisIsJMichael uh, and at the Indianapolis Star – Looking forward to talking again soon. This is a, a, always a acclaimed show, as they say. So this is uh, <laughs> good having you, man. All right. All right, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this free preview of Dunked on Prime Total Access. A reminder, we are having our preseason sale 35% off when you buy a year membership to Dunked on Prime Total Access. Get it now as the sale ends when the season starts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.